Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, President of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. We want to thank you for listening to this chapel message. Our mission at Southeastern is to seek to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ by equipping students to serve the church and fulfill the Great Commission. We hope that you enjoy this chapel message and that you will visit our website. It's www.sebts.edu. There you can learn more about our school and what the Lord is doing here. We hope you enjoyed the message. Thank you for being a part of what we're doing here. It's good to see you this evening, and I want to invite you to take your Bible and join me in 1 Timothy chapter 2, uh, beginning with verse 8, actually, and then going through verse 15. Uh, tonight, we're going to tackle uh, one of the most controversial subjects in the church today, maybe not in our church, but in the greater uh, body of Christ, and that is the role of women in the church. Now, uh, as we begin tonight, let me do something for you. At the top of your notes... Let me uh, ask you to write, first of all, the word church, and then I'm going to give you a number of scriptures. In other words, if you were to ask me tonight, Danny, uh, where are the passages in the Bible that speak to the role of women in the church? Well, in addition to First uh, Timothy chapter two, verses nine through 15, you could also note these texts. First Corinthians chapter 11, uh, verses two through 16. First Corinthians chapter 14. Verses 34 and 35. Titus chapter 2, verses 3 through 5. So one more time, if you were asking the question, what biblical texts deal with the issue of the role of women in the church? 1 Corinthians 11, 2 through 16. 1 Corinthians 14, 34 through 35. Titus chapter 2, verses 3 through 5, along with 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 9 through 15. Then secondly, write the word home. And by the word home, write these particular texts. Ephesians 5, 21 through 33. Colossians 3, 18 through 21. 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. Ephesians 5, 21 through 33. Colossians 3, 18 through 21. And 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. And there then you would have texts that deal with the issue of the role of women in the home. Coming back then to First Timothy chapter 2, I will start with verse 8 because he gives a single word of admonition to the men and then goes into a more lengthy word of admonition to the women. And then he comes back in chapter 3 and actually addresses men in the leadership assignment of the elder or the pastor. And so beginning with verse 8, he says, I desire, therefore, that the men pray, number one, everywhere. Kind of picking up on the theme of chapter 2, verse 1, where he says, Therefore, I exert, first of all, that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men. And, of course, all men there means all human beings, all persons. He's using the word generically there. But now in verse 8, he is speaking to men in the church, and he says, I desire that the men pray, number one, everywhere, number two, lifting up holy hands, and number three, without wrath, without anger, and also without doubting. Evidently, some were not uh, conducting themselves in the church as they ought, and so Paul recognizes the way to get them right in their heart is to get them on their knees praying, and he says, if you will indeed pray in the right way, the issues of wrath and doubting will also dissipate as well. Then verse 9, in like manner also, in other words, in a similar pattern, that the women 
adorn themselves in modest apparel with propriety and moderation, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly clothing, but which is proper for women professing godliness with good works. Now the real kicker. Let a woman learn in silence with all submission, and I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man, but to be in silence. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. Nevertheless, she will be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with self-control. Now, uh, the basic thrust of this text is not going to be hard to figure out, but there are a number of interpretive uh, landmines along the way. So before I dive into it, I also want to read for you tonight the same verses, this time from the New Living Translation, because I do think it catches some of the nuances in particular of what Paul is trying to say. And so again, starting with verse 8, just listen to the New Living Translation. In every place of worship, I want men to pray with holy hands lifted up to God, free from anger and controversy. And I want women to be modest in their apparel. Uh, they should wear decent and appropriate clothing and not draw attention to themselves by the way they fix their hair or by wearing gold or pearls or expensive clothes for women who claim to be devoted to God should make themselves attractive by the good things they do. And I like that very well. I think that catches exactly what Paul is getting at in terms of the way a woman should dress herself. Then he moves on. Women should learn quietly. Notice it's not the word silence, but the word quietly. And most New Testament scholars will tell you that is a much better translation. So women should learn quietly and submissively. I do not let women teach men or have authority over them. Let them listen quietly. For God made Adam first, and afterward he made Eve. And it was not Adam who was deceived by Satan. The woman was deceived, and sin was the result. But women will be saved through childbearing, assuming that they continue to live in faith, love, holiness, and modesty. And there's actually a marginal reading in the New Living Translation that says it this way, they will be saved by accepting their role as mothers. And following that line of thought, as I will in a moment, rather than use the word saved, the Greek word could also be translated preserved. And so it might be the thought is best expressed, but women will be preserved throughout their salvation, uh, accepting their role as mothers, continuing in faith, love, holiness, and modesty. And I will address that a bit more in just a moment. But in the day and age in which we live, probably there's never been a time where there has been more confusion about the role of women, the role of women in society, the role of women in the church, and the role of women in the home. And in particular, for us tonight, the role of women in the church. If you look at your notes on the second page, you will see a chart. Perspectives of the role of women in the church. And what you will see there is five basic categories. You'll see some representatives in each of those categories. Most of these names will not be familiar to you. I'm not even familiar with every single one of them in any great detail. But then at the bottom of the page, I basically delineate for you what is the, um, the thumb sketch 
or the basic perspective of each one of them concerning how they view women and the church. And so, beginning from left to right, there is the category of radical feminism, which you find in secular culture. At the bottom of the page, they believe that women are superior in essence and that women are superior in function to men. Now, to be fair, most of those in that category communicate that more in terms of an attitude. In other words, if you were to actually ask them, do you really think that essentially a woman is superior to a man, uh, most of them would probably say no, but in terms of their attitude, in terms of their disposition, they certainly write and editorialize in that kind of a way. And so they have a very exalted view of women, not such a high view of men. Uh, several years ago, Gloria Steinem, when talking about men and women, said in terms of marriage, men and women have as much in common as a fish and a bicycle. Now, why she picked out those two things, I don't know other than to say they have nothing in common. And in essence, she says, well, that's how I see men and women. And certainly within the institution of marriage, it is nothing more than a legalized form of enslavement of a woman to a man. And so in radical feminism, there's a slight adjustment today, but not a whole lot, because now radical feminism has moved into the radical homosexual agenda. But they have a very low view of marriage and not a very high view of men. Secondly, though, is the radical biblical feminism. And they would argue that women are equal in essence to men and also that women are the same in function as men as well. And so anything a man can do, a woman can do, is certainly as it applies to the church. And in fact, you'll note that the next category, egalitarianism, or what we could call evangelical feminism, has basically the same end result as well. Women are equal in essence, and women have the same function in the church as do the men. Uh, the difference is evangelical feminism, evangelical Evangelical uh, egalitarianism has a slightly higher view of the Bible than the prior category. In fact, some of them would even say that they are inerrantist, uh, that they believe the Bible is without error in all that it teaches, and yet they would argue men can be pastors, women can be pastors, men can preach. Women can preach anything a man does in the church, a woman can do as well. And then there is the category where you will recognize some names because, for example, my name is in there, along with Al Mohler and Paige and Dorothy Patterson and Andreas Kostenberger and Pete Shim. And in fact, uh, when I add at the bottom there, Southern Baptist Seminary faculties, that means I would include my fellow faculty members that are here and members of this church like David Lanier and David Jones and Greg Heisler. This uh, particular position says women are equal in essence to men. Both men and women are equal image bearers of God, but women are different in their function and assignment. And though they are equal to men, they are not called to the leadership assignment in the church. That is, a woman should not fill the office of the pastor, uh, the elder, or the overseer. And that God indeed has a parallel understanding between his government for the church and his government for the home. And indeed, there is a striking parallelism wherein each God calls men to lead 
And he calls women to follow the leadership of uh, the men, especially in terms of in the church, the pastor, the elder, the overseer. And then there is the category of chauvinism. And actually, Aristotle was a thoroughgoing chauvinist who believed in the ontological essential inferiority of women to men. And if you read Augustine and you read Thomas Aquinas, I put a question mark by both of them. The fact of the matter is you are going to be hard pressed not to come away with the idea other than they believe that men are superior in essence to women and that women are in some measure inferior to men. And so that is the kind of uh, broad playing field that is out there uh, today. Now, the question then comes to be this. For those of us who believe the Bible is the word of God, for those of us who believe that the Bible is infallible and inerrant and that it indeed reveals God's will clearly in all matters, what is God's pattern for women when it comes to the church and uh, the body of Christ. Well, note three observations that I make from the text this evening, and then we're going to answer very quickly ten practical questions. Number one, God calls ladies to dress modestly. Look again at verse 9. In like manner also, the women should adorn themselves in modest apparel with propriety and moderation. And not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly clothing. Now, Paul, of course, is not here telling women not to dress. That is blatantly clear and, and, and patently uh, obvious. But he is saying to the women that there is a proper way to dress and there is an improper way to dress. We do know that historically in Ephesus, in Rome, and even some of the other major cities, uh, wealthy women... Uh, were prone to show off their wealth. And one of the ways they would show off their wealth is the things that they would put on in terms of dress and clothing, but also the things that they would put around their neck, the things that they would put on their wrist, the rings that they would put on their fingers, and in particular, the various hairdos that they would sometimes create and the jewelry uh, and the diamonds and the pearls and other things that they would place in their hair. In other words, the church in the ancient world sometimes tragically was nothing more than a, well, that's not fair. It at least was in part a female fashion show. Now, it would be nice to say that that doesn't happen anymore in the 21st century context, but uh, lest you doubt that be the case, just uh, think back, for example, to uh, various Easter celebrations that you have seen throughout the years, and uh, it is almost imperative that a woman be in a new dress, a, a bright, sparkling dress, a dress that would draw attention to something or to somebody. Now you say, you think that's wrong. Well, it depends what you mean by, do I think that's wrong? Uh, do I think it's wrong to draw attention to yourself? Yes, of course I do. The only person that we ought to focus on when we come together is Jesus. And so if I'm taking notice of a man or a woman, by the way they dress in such a way that they stand out and draw attention to themselves, uh, yeah, I, I would say that that is wrong. I would say that that's inappropriate. I'd say it's sinful. 
You say, well, then there are a lot of folks who come to church to do sinful things. Well, that's, of course, true, and I happen to be one of them. And so we're all in the same group together, but at least if you know what you're doing and you know what you ought not to be doing, that puts you in a different category altogether. And so I wish I could say it doesn't happen uh, in our day and age, but it most certainly does. Although, if we would be honest this, uh, this evening, uh, our problem now is not that so often people overdress. The problem now is we so often underdress and we come to church like slobs. We come to church in a way that, in a sense, uh, dishonors the one that we are gathering to worship. Now, again, hear me and hear me. Well, I know I'm treading on some really thin ice here, but that's OK. I, I tend to do that on a regular basis. Um, I have completely different standards for believers and non-believers. OK, I have completely different standards for believers and non-believers. You say, what are your standards for non-believers? I really don't have any. I, I basically expect non-believers to act like non-believers. And so I really don't have much of a way of a standard or an expectation for them uh, at all. In contrast for believers, oh yeah, I have much different standards for them because God has much different standards for them. And when Paul is addressing this issue here in verse 9, he's not talking to unbelievers, he's talking to believers. And he is basically saying, look, you should not flaunt your wealth. You should not do anything that draws attention to yourself in terms of what you put in your hair, what you put on your face, what you put around your neck, what you put on your body. No, you should adorn yourself in modest apparel with propriety, with with good judgment. The next word, moderation, can be translated with discretion or self-control, not with the braided hair or the gold or the pearls or costly clothing. No, you want to dress in a Christ-honoring way, a gracious way, a way that bespeaks a woman who is living under the lordship of Jesus Christ and wishes to draw attention only to Jesus and to nothing else. But again, as I said a moment ago, our problem today is not so much people overdressing as people underdressing. I came across an article uh, in a Newsweek magazine entitled, Leave Your Hat On But Lose the Jeans. And it was a, a story or an article about a lady who said this, and I quote, Returning to church recently for the first time since high school. So this is a lady that had dropped out of church like many people after high school, had not gone for a number of years, but now she decided for whatever reason ought to get back. Returning to church recently for the first time since high school, I felt like I had emerged from a time machine in my tailored skirt, silk blouse, and polished pumps. The rest of the congregation sported chunky pullover sweaters and faded blue jeans. In restaurants, patrons pursue wine lists and smooth cloth napkins in their laps while wearing sneakers. It's hard to justify our disheveled appearances with these kind of actions. And basically, I think she's right. Now, again, I'm not in a tie tonight. I don't require a coat and tie. I've got jeans. I've got T-shirts. I've got tennis shoes. Um, there may be a particular time and place where those are appropriate, but I also suspect there's probably a time when we ought to just be doing better, not to show off, but to honor Christ. And that's the bottom line. The bottom line is, as I eat, as I drink, or whatever I do, am I doing this to the glory of God? Well, in this context, uh, people are overdoing it. Maybe in many of our contexts, people are underdoing it. But then he says, look, the gracious way is rooted in a godly way. But do that which is proper for women who profess godliness 
with good works. In other words, I'm going to do what I do. And in this context, I'm going to dress myself in a way that bespeaks the good works that are appropriate for someone who is a devoted, radical follower of Jesus Christ. And let me say this and I'll move on. Uh, Context can be everything. Context can be everything. Uh, What is appropriate on one day when we gather may not be necessarily required on another day. That's one thing to consider. Uh, If you live in the deep south versus the northeast versus the midwest versus the northwest versus southern California, it may be a different context. Uh, Translate yourself to the mission field. And you're now in Africa or you're in Southeast Asia or you find yourself in the Ukraine or you're in South America. Again, the context where you locate and find yourself, I think, is going to influence what is deemed to be what? Modest, appropriate, Christ, God honoring. And Paul says, just ladies, please dress modestly. I do think he said this in part because he did know. That men are creatures of sight, men are moved by what they see, and a man should not be moved to sensual thinking in the way that his sisters in the local body of believers dress. That should not ever, 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 ever happen. So he begins by saying, dress modestly. Then he moves to the really tough one. Ladies learn submissively. And he gives us a threefold argument in verses 11 through 14. First of all, he says, look. This is simply the pattern of authority that God has instituted. Verse 11, let a woman learn in silence with all submission. Now, again, I've already said, I think the best translation is let a woman learn quietly with a submissive heart. And I do not permit a woman to note the conjunction that joins the two ideas together. She is not to teach or, as it's joined, have authority over a man, but she is to be quiet. So you say, Danny, a woman can never teach. That's not what the text is saying. This text says you're not to teach and have authority. If I could paraphrase the meaning, a woman is not to be a pastor. A woman is not to be an elder. A woman is not to occupy an authoritative teaching position over men. That is what the text is saying. And so God has established a pattern of authority for the church. And that authority then lies with a man, not with a woman. But then secondly, he grounds his argument not in cultural mores. He grounds his argument in the priority of creation. Look at verse 13, 4. Adam was formed first and then Eve. In other words, he gives us a Reader's Digest in one verse version of Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. And in essence, he says, go back and look at how creation unfolded. God made man first. And then what did the Bible say? What does the Bible say? I will make for Adam a helper who will perfectly complement him. And therefore, Paul is basically saying, even in creation itself, we have a divine pattern of the priority of the man. And therefore, that translates both into the world, as we'll see, of the home and also into the world of the church. And so the priority of creation is also a basis for arguing for male headship in the home, in other words, and in the church. In other words, it's creationism, not chauvinism, that is the issue. But then he has a third argument. 
learn from the particulars of the fall. And these are very hard verses or a very hard verse to unfold, but I'll give it my best shot. He simply says this. Now, Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into the transgression. Now, this verse has been open to all sorts of interpretations. One interpretation that held sway for a long time was that the women are forbidden for leadership in the church because women are more easily deceived than are men. That women are more gullible than are men. Well... I agree with John Piper here, and I actually thought this before I heard him say it, and then I just said, well, you're just confirming what I've always thought. I think there are some areas where men are more gullible, um, and I think there are areas where the other sex is more gullible. I think there's some areas in life where men are more easily deceived, and I think there are other areas in life where women are more easily deceived, and so to be honest with you, I don't think that that is what he is saying at all. Actually, I think what he is doing is not uh, criticizing Eve, but criticizing Adam. That's what I think he's doing. You say, why? Because his argument is Eve was deceived, but Adam was what? Not deceived. In other words, Eve was beguiled and fooled by the serpent. But Adam sinned. With full knowledge, Adam sinned knowing exactly what he was doing. And therefore, the verse is not actually a slap in the face to Eve. It's actually a slap in the face to Adam. And by the way, go read Romans 5. In whom did the whole human race fall into sin? Did we fall into sin because of Eve, who was the first transgressor? Or did we fall into sin in Adam because he is the head of the race? Text is clear. And so Adam is held responsible based upon Genesis chapter 3. Adam is held responsible based upon Romans chapter 5. And I believe what he's saying here is, look, Adam sinned willfully. Adam sinned knowingly. And yes, in the process, God's chain of command from God to man to woman to creation got reversed. And now the creature worked on Eve, who worked on Adam, who together they both committed idolatry, thinking that in the day that they ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they would be like God, and therefore the blame ultimately falls upon Adam, not Eve. And he's not blaming Eve, he's actually holding Adam more culpable, which again is the argument. That God placed men in a leadership assignment in the context of marriage and the church. And that was set up even before the fall took place in Genesis chapter 3. So, we accept the pattern of authority. We notice the priority of creation. We learn from the particulars of the fall. And then another very uh, difficult hermeneutical choice. Ladies serve expectantly. First of all, focus on your calling. Focus on your character. What does he say? Nevertheless, she that is women, the woman, will be saved. Now, again, as I mentioned earlier, the word could be translated preserved. And she will be preserved in childbearing if indeed they continue in four things. Number one, faith, confidence and trust in God. Secondly, love. 
Third, holiness. And fourthly, self-control. Now, what in the world does he mean when he says a woman will be saved in childbearing? Well, there are at least five different views. Some have said that saved in childbearing means she'll be saved physically through childbearing, but it can't mean that. Because we all know of women who have died in the bearing of a child. So it cannot be that she is saved physically. Others have said that it means that we will be saved, that women will be saved through the incarnation of the one who will come from a woman. And they make a connection between First um, Timothy 2.15 and Genesis 3.15 where he says, I will put enmity the serpent he's talking to, I'll put enmity between your seed and the seed of the woman. You will bruise his heel, but he'll crush your head. And so some people believe saved in childbearing means yes, because it will be through childbearing that the Savior will come. That's not my view, but I do think there's at least some things to commend concerning that view. A third view is that she will be saved spiritually. But it can't be that because we're saved by grace through faith, not by having children. Furthermore, if that's true, then all of us men are dying going to hell because we can't have kids. So it can't mean saved spiritually. Others have said it means to be saved from spiritual error and false teaching if you will commit yourself to your calling of bearing children and rearing godly children and not getting caught up with the false teaching. And that certainly uh, would be true, though I don't think that's the meaning of the text. So you say, what do you think is going on? Well, the New American Standard, if you has a New American Standard out there tonight, you know the words translated preserved, isn't it? And so she will be preserved, I think, is a better understanding. And what he is saying is, if you accept the calling of being a mother and you accept the calling of living in submission under the leadership structure that God has established, then you will be preserved through the rearing of children, continuing in faith and love and holiness and self-control. In other words, what he really has in view here is a woman's sanctification, her sanctification, and she will grow in Christ's likeness and live out her salvation if she accepts again the high calling of motherhood and accompanies that with these Christian graces that are a natural outgrowth of a relationship with Jesus Christ. And personally, I think that is a better way of getting at what verse 15 is all about. Now, having then worked through this text, take the last page of your handout and you'll note there ten questions that I believe have to have an answer concerning the role of women in the church. And some of these, I'm just going to give a one or two word explanation. Another uh, question or two, maybe a little bit longer, but nothing extensive. And so if you're a note taker, uh, you can pretty much fill in the blanks or add a word. Now, you don't have to agree with me. You can at least put down my opinion. Then you can put a, a frowny face beside it, put your own opinion beside it. But I'll And I'll do this to you, by the way. I will tell you where I believe the Bible speaks with, uh, I'm going to say it this way, dogmatic certainty. And then I'll tell you two other questions. This is my opinion. Fair enough? What I think the Bible speaks to clearly and what's my opinion. So question number one. Should a woman serve as a pastor or an elder? And the Bible's clear teaching on that is no. A woman should not be a pastor or an elder. Second question. Should a woman serve as a deaconess? Well, here's my opinion. Yes, as long as the deacon and deaconess are biblical. So what do you mean by that? 
They're servants. And they have no authority in the church. You say, you don't think deacons should have authority in the church? Doesn't matter what I think. God doesn't think they should have authority in the church. So that's the bottom line. God says that the deacon is to be a servant to the body. And so I actually think, go read Titus chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. I think you have deacons, older men, instructing younger men. And deaconesses, if you like, older godly women instructing younger women. I think you have it whether you call them that or not. Of course, the word deacon, deaconess just means servant. It is debated as to what is going on in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 8. But if you define a deacon and a deaconess biblically, they are servants to the body. Men primarily ministering to men, women primarily ministering to women. You don't ordain them to an authoritative position in the church. Yes, if for whatever reason you have an unbiblical understanding of deacons and they are ordained to an authoritative position in the church, kind of like the, the, the watchdogs of the pastor, then no, they should not be ordained. And what you need to do is get your theology of the deacon correct. Question number three. Should a woman be ordained? If so, are there any limitations? Well, there really is a prior question. Should anyone be ordained? Should anyone be ordained? See, I'm actually in the same category here with uh, Charles Spurgeon and Paige Patterson, who believes that we've created something that's unbiblical. And I believe that most of us in our practice of ordination are doing something. It's not that it's unbiblical. It's simply the Bible doesn't speak of anything like that at all. Now, I am ordained. I was ordained because in certain states that is required for me to perform marriages and other functions of the of the clergy. But should a woman be ordained? Well, should anyone be ordained? But if you're talking about should a woman be ordained to the office of the pastor or the elder, the clear answer is no. What about if you were ordaining her to be a children's minister or a preschool minister or some other kind of service? Well, that's a different kind of question that goes beyond the biblical text, and we can talk about that some other time. Number four, can a woman speak in the assembly of believers? The answer is yes. Go read 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 2 through 16, where the Bible says, With a submissive spirit and attitude and deportment, women can both pray and prophesy when the body of believers is brought together for corporate worship. So, yes, she can. Does that then uh, mean she can stand up here and be the public preacher, teacher of the word? No. That is reserved to a man, to the office of the elder and the pastor. Uh, are there any limitations on women speaking in the church? Yes, we just read the main one in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 9 through 15. A woman cannot assume the authoritative teaching position over a man. Now, I think I know, but I don't even know, okay? I don't even know. I need to be careful here. Well, let me do it this way. I once attended a church, a very well-known church that had as its largest Sunday school class, in fact, Dr. Lanier and I were both members of this church, it has its largest Sunday school class. At the time, the class when we were there ran more than 700. Mixed class taught by a woman. So week after week after week after week after week, oh no. Year after year after year after year after year, oh no. Decade after decade after decade after decade, a woman was occupying a consistent teaching position over men. Do I believe that that can be supported biblically? No, I do not. No, I do not. Is it the case that there may be times where a woman will instruct a man personally, privately, 
are in an exceptional kind of situation that is not the normal pattern, yes, I think that may be allowed. But to be in a consistent teaching position over a man, I think, violates the biblical teaching and the biblical pattern. So you say, so you would not be happy of having mixed classes with a woman as the authoritative teacher. No, I would not. So there are limitations. Question number five, then, can a woman instruct a man? Yes, but it should be privately, like with Priscilla and Aquila, in terms of their instruction of Apollos. And uh, it would be exceptional. In other words, it would be rare, uh, on a, it would be a maybe that's a better way. It'd be occasional, not continual. So, for example, uh, one of my heroes from the past is a missionary by the name of Bertha Smith. Bertha Smith was a very brave missionary to China. On a number of occasions, when she was in the state, she was invited to come to a church like ours on a Sunday morning, and she would get up and she would speak during the worship hour. She would always say, always say, always say. I'm here this morning under the authority of your pastor and at his invitation. And I will speak as long as he gives me permission. If he asks me to stop and sit down and be quiet, I will stop, sit down and be quiet. I can accept that. I, I can feel comfortable with that because she is not there week after week as the authoritative uh, teaching pastor of that local church. So occasionally I've got underlined privately. I've got underlined twice. Publicly, got to underline one time because it will only be occasionally. Number six, is Scripture culturally conditioned on this issue? Or is Paul's argument grounded in that which is transcultural and timeless? And the answer is, it is transcultural and timeless. <clears throat> Paul makes his argument based upon the order of creation. And he makes his argument not on the basis of the fall. See, some people say women have to submit in marriage and in the church because of the fall. No, the fall messed everything up. The fall is the battle of the sexes begun and commenced. Paul makes his argument from Genesis chapter 2 in terms of male headship. He does note the fall, but when he notes the fall, he throws the blame at the feet of Adam, not of Eve. And so I believe it is transcultural and it is timeless. Number seven, are scriptural guidelines oppressive to women or liberating? Well, that's easy. Anything God does for us is liberating from sin. And so, ladies, you should soar for the glory of God, knowing that any parameters that God establishes, he establishes them for your good and for his glory. It's like asking the question, God establishes parameters for our sexual activity. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? Well, I just know this. If we would do sex God's way, one man, one woman within the confines of marriage for life, every STD disappears from the planet in one generation. That sounds like a good thing to me. That sounds like a, a wonderful thing to me. Furthermore, psychologists tell us that the people who have the most active, happy sex lives are those who are in monogamous relationships within the covenant of marriage. Sounds again like that's a pretty good thing. And so whenever God establishes parameters, he does so for his glory and for our good. Number eight, will God's spirit ever direct and speak contrary to his word? Well, of course not. No. Are women essentially equal to men? Yes, of course they are. Men and women equally bear the image of God. But are there functional distinctions and differences? Well, if you can't see that one, you're in need of some serious therapy. And I have some biblical counselors at the seminary that I can recommend you visit tomorrow. Yes, there are some major functional distinctions and differences that very clearly reveal themselves in terms of number 10. 
Does God's role for women in the church parallel God's role for women in the home? And the answer is yes. Does it parallel it for men as well? Yes. Government? I'd have to say not so. In other words, and I'll close with this. Could I be a member of a church that has a female pastor? No, I could not. Uh, Could I be supportive of a home where the woman is the leader? No, I would tell such a person that I think that they have things confused and that they need to rethink what they're doing. But could I vote for a female to be president of the United States? Yes, I could. I have voted for a female senator even this last time. No, probably didn't take a rocket science to figure out whether I was on the winning side or the losing side. But I voted for a female senator uh, this last time. And uh, so there we go. So I don't see their tracking. Some have argued this, but I just don't think you can do so. Uh, some have tried to argue that there is a parallelism all the way across the board for the home, for the church and for government. I don't see that. Or even for uh, uh, even for society. In other words, a woman, if you follow that logic out, uh, could not be the president of her company. Uh, she could not be uh, the uh, office manager uh, over a man. Uh, well, again, first of all, to even try to apply that to the lost world is sheer futility. Secondly, I don't think you can support it biblically. I just don't find the biblical warrant there. In other words, I'm going to draw the lines where God clearly draws the lines. And I'm going to accept freedom outside those lines and trust that God decided there was no need to address that. For had he felt that there was, he would have. So the bottom line is this, ladies, you can teach children. You can teach women. You can pour your life into children and you can pour your life into women. And maybe like uh, some ladies here tonight. Uh, you'll touch the world through your sons who sense God's calling upon their lives and find themselves scattered around the world because of the influence and the impact made upon their lives, hopefully by a godly daddy, but also by a godly, godly mother. And that's a pretty good, I believe, deal to strike with God. We close in prayer. Heavenly Father, uh, we've talked about an interesting subject tonight. I doubt anyone went to sleep. And, Lord, I pray that I have been true to your word and fair with the biblical text. And, Lord, uh, I pray that I've also been fair in terms of how we apply your word in terms of the proper role in the church for men and for women. And, Lord, help us to keep this in mind as we close tonight. There is no inferiority in submissiveness. Lord, all of us in this room are called to be submissive to our governing officials. All of us in this room are called to be in submission to a police officer as he uh, enforces the law. All of us in this room tonight are called, myself included, to be in submission uh, to Brother Bill, who is our pastor, our leader, uh, the one who directs us. And Lord, let us also remember tonight that your son, who is fully and completely and equally God, was submissive to his father to save all of us from our sins. And therefore, Lord, we can rejoice in being called to a submissive lifestyle in whatever context we find ourselves Because our role model for doing so is Jesus. We make our prayer this evening in his name. Amen. Thank you again for listening to this chapel message from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. 
If you are thinking about theological education on the undergraduate or graduate level, including doctoral studies, we hope that you consider us. If you also find these chapel messages encouraging and a blessing to your walk with Christ, we hope that you will consider financially supporting Southeastern. Our graduates are literally serving the kingdom across this globe, working to carry the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. Your gifts will help to train more, and they will serve as a worthwhile investment in God's kingdom. You can find more information about attending Southeastern or supporting us financially at www.sebts.edu. We cover your prayers and trust that God will bless every good work you do for His glory. Thank you for joining us in our chapel services.